Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today I'm going to be telling you about a case that happens to be somewhat close to home for me. In 1986, an 11-year-old girl named Allison Perot was lured out of her home to her demise in a very unsuspecting way. According to an article that I found on BuzzFeed, there were 37 murders in Toronto, Canada that year, but Allison's death struck the province of Ontario in a unique way and was particularly impactful. The aftermath and effect of Allison's murder would be pervasive, resulting in an all-too-familiar marketing jingle advocating for child safety that is recognized by most Canadian millennials today as being a hallmark of their Saturday morning cartoons. Watch out, beware, things aren't always as they seem, we'll show you what we mean. Stay alert, stay safe. Before we dive in, I just have to say, don't forget to follow the show wherever you're listening now, and be sure to check out my Instagram at CrimopediaPod. Okay, everybody, with all of that out of the way, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Born in Toronto, Ontario, Canada to parents Peter and Leslie Perot, Alison Perot was bright and incredibly talented for an 11-year-old girl. She was attending the French immersion school Gabrielle Roy, which was located close to the core of downtown Toronto, just south actually of the Church in Wellesley area, which you would recognize if you've listened to my episode about Bruce MacArthur. Allison was street smart and would take public transit almost every day to school downtown. It was a subway ride that took her only a few stops south away from her home on Summerhill Avenue. Her father is a civil engineer and her mother, Leslie, a very stoic and self-assured woman, is an advertising executive. At the time of Allison's murder, she was working for the company formerly known as J. Walter Thompson, now called Wonderman Thompson. With the Perot's careers, they were able to give Allison and her younger brother, who was eight years old at the time, a very comfortable life. They supported Allison in pursuing her natural aptitude for running. She was an avid runner and was a member of the Tom Longboat Track Club for youth aged 8 to 12. Allison had actually won her first race in the summer of 1986 and had qualified to participate in an international track and field meet taking place in Plainfield, New Jersey on August 1st of 1986. Unfortunately, however, despite all of Allison's hard work and determination, she would never get to compete at this race. And a hard worker Allison certainly was. Her mom, Leslie, is quoted in an interview as saying, She had some real natural leadership abilities. She became good at running because she trained so hard, so she also had the determination and self-discipline to keep at it and to go through all the regimen you have to do to train. At 11 years old, Allison had set herself up for a bright future in athletics, if so desired, and she never failed to make her parents proud. And in fact, Allison had begun to get some recognition for her merit in racing. Her and other qualifying teammates were featured in an article in the Toronto Star. This recognition was starting to grow in size, and that's why on the 25th of July in 1986, it wasn't totally unusual for Allison to receive a phone call at home from a gentleman claiming to be a photographer, asking her to meet him at the University of Toronto's Varsity Stadium to take some promotional photos of her and her team. This stadium is located only a few minutes southwest of Allison's home on Summerhill, sort of wedged between the neighborhood areas of the Annex and Yorkville. 
Allison had actually trained at this stadium before during the previous fall of 1985, and so this arrangement made all the sense in the world to her. The caller had identified himself as a professional photographer and someone who knew that Allison Perot had qualified for the International Youth Track Championship, the one that was going to be held in New Jersey. This caller identified himself with an air of familiarity. He identified a stadium that Allison had already trained at, and he told her that he would be taking professional photos of her running for promotional content. With Allison's recognition increasing, like I mentioned, and with the championship coming up only a few days from the time of this phone call, this seemed perfectly legitimate to Allison. And in fact, she may have even known that this phone call was going to be coming eventually, because a week before on the 14th of July, an unknown male caller had already tried to get a hold of her at home, but she was out at summer camp, and the babysitter who was watching her younger brother took the call instead. The caller then told the babysitter he would call back another time to get a hold of Allison, so it's possible that she could have been anticipating this phone call and this meetup. But this time on the 25th of July, nobody else was home when Allison received the phone call. She was all by herself, and so she answered the phone and really wanted to go get these promotional photos taken. And so she did the responsible thing that any child would do. She told the caller that she would have to phone her mom at work and ask first, but then she'd call him right back. Allison got a hold of her mom at work, and the two discussed a route to get to the stadium using public transit, which again, was something Allison had done many times in her life. As well, the two discussed an anticipated time for Allison to be home by, and at the end of the call, Leslie Perot gave her daughter permission to go venture out and get these photos taken by this photographer. The plan was, Allison was going to go take the subway like she had done practically every day in the last year to get to school. This time, however, she was only going four stops away from her home to the stadium and was expected to be back at around 2.30pm. Allison was seen by some witnesses alone on the subway ride to the Varsity Stadium, and a security camera at a bank on Bedford Road, which intersects with the stadium, captured her walking alone. There is no existing security footage of Allison meeting up with the photographer, but I think it goes without saying, given the nature of this show and the way I've just told the first part of this story, that Allison didn't make it home by 2.30pm, and the conversation she had with her mother before she left her house on this day would in fact be the last time that Leslie Perot would ever speak to her daughter. The late Staff Sergeant Don Sampson of the Toronto Metropolitan Police suspects that Allison did in fact make it to the stadium that day, but after she met up with the photographer, it's kind of up in the air exactly what transpired next. When Allison failed to return home on time, her parents were worried, but they were cautiously optimistic. They waited until approximately 5pm to begin inquiring with her friends and neighbors about where she could possibly be. And at this point, I think it's easy as parents to think of every single scenario and try to actively suppress the worst case one. The conscious, purposeful suppression of that potential outcome sets the tone for underlying urgency, but really, the Perros knew that Allison could have been with a friend, maybe even just lost track of time, or maybe got lost somewhere. And that urgency wasn't really warranted yet. However, once Allison's parents were unable to get any information from her friends and nobody seemed to know where she was, it was clear that it was time to call police. The Perros did this at approximately 6pm on this day, the 25th of July in 1986, and the search for Allison picked up quite quickly. Hundreds of people over the coming days would don the streets of Toronto looking for 11-year-old Allison Perot. 
Unfortunately, everybody's worst fears were realized when no less than 48 hours after Allison was last seen, on the 27th of July, Allison Perot's body was found by two boys walking through a densely wooded area of Kingsmill Park off of the Humber River in Etobicoke, an area considered to be an extension of the West End of Toronto, approximately a half-hour drive from where Allison was last seen. Allison had been bound, sexually assaulted, and strangled, and her body was found face down in sort of a fetal position. Once police were notified, the case was classified as a homicide investigation as opposed to a missing persons case, and it was transferred over to that division. Then, it was time to try and collect some forensic evidence. Although DNA analysis was still considered to be in its infancy at this time, police managed to collect semen samples from Allison to be used later, before sending her body off for cremation and delivering her ashes to the family. Today, there is actually a memorial green space site for Allison Perot just south of the David A. Balfour Park, and her gravesite is approximately four minutes away in the Mount Pleasant Cemetery. It would be almost right away that police would put out a $50,000 reward for information leading to Allison's killer. J. Walter Thompson, the former name of the advertising company that Leslie Perot worked for, also put up an additional $10,000. During the initial investigation, police began interviewing and questioning people. A staggering 18,000 people would be interviewed, and dozens more would be formally questioned. As well, Toronto Police wasted no time developing a task force. Inspector Steve Irwin of the Toronto Police Service recalls getting the phone call while at his home to begin working on the task force immediately. His job was to set up the essential tip line and answer the countless phone calls that would come in, each with potential bits and pieces of relevant information. And police had a lot of relevant information to work with. In addition to the steady influx of tips from the public, plus the DNA profile that was collected from the scene of Allison's body, it had also become evident to police that the killer had likely been stalking Allison for some time. When the killer called Allison at her home, he knew her track team and knew how to advance on her in an unsuspecting way. He approached her with a ruse that was too specific, too convincingly legitimate, to be a random act of violence. He knew that she had qualified for the championship track in New Jersey. He knew that she had previously trained at the stadium he was inviting her to. And apparently, other relatives and non-associated people with the last name Perot who were registered in the Toronto phone book at that time were also getting calls from an unknown male asking to speak to one Allison Perot who had just qualified for the International Youth Track Championship in New Jersey. As well, police speculated that the killer might have even known that Allison was going to be home alone this time, especially if his first attempt at calling the house to lure her out was foiled because Allison was absent at camp and the babysitter was present at home. This kind of background information is crucial. Not only do we have DNA evidence and countless tips coming in, but if you think about it, in order for someone to stalk a child like that, especially before the time of social media, one has to be physically present. So it's likely that this man would have been seen lingering in the area, and it was just a matter of waiting for the right witness to call in. Because of this, police, like everybody else, were hopeful that the abundance of potential avenues for investigation would get this case solved so quickly, and so that Leslie and Peter Perot could get some closure. However, despite what seemed like endless manpower and countless hours going into this investigation, Allison's case would grow cold, and it would stay that way until an entire decade later. 
Out of the 18,000 people who were interviewed by police initially, Francis Carl Roy, born on September 18th of 1957, was one of them. He was asked to come speak to police likely for a few reasons. One, police were interviewing almost everybody in the area. Two, Francis Roy had actually used the same training facility as Allison's track club. And three, Francis Roy had an extensive criminal background. His criminal history dates back to about 1976 and includes a wide variety of crimes, both violent and nonviolent. Possession of stolen property, petty theft, fraud, assault, break and enter, and rape. Francis Roy is a First Nations man from Manitoulin Island, an island on Lake Huron, which is the lake that separates the province of Ontario from the state of Michigan in the United States. Francis is an avid runner himself, with a keen interest in photography, and was living in Toronto until 1988, two years after Allison was murdered, when he moved to Vancouver, British Columbia and got a job as a youth counsellor. A source I read states that Francis actually got this job after claiming to have a degree in psychology from the University of Toronto, and whoever hired him simply did not conduct a background check, or else they would have discovered that Francis Roy, in fact, does not have a bachelor's degree. Francis Roy would leave British Columbia in 1991 after a bar fight where he allegedly would bludgeon somebody with a block of wood. Another source I read stated that the individual who was bludgeoned was possibly even the bar owner. Whether or not those are facts, he did return to Toronto in 1991 after a violent incident in British Columbia. When he was first interviewed by police back in 1986 as they were surveying for information regarding Allison's murder, Francis Roy told Toronto police that on the day Allison disappeared, he went out on a run, as he usually does, and then met up with a friend at a bar. Now, I'm not entirely sure if police followed up on this alibi at all to confirm it. Possibly not, due to the overwhelming amount of manpower required to run the initial investigation already, but Francis wasn't looked into any further. Toronto police had endless leads to follow up on, and a sneaking suspicion that whoever had committed this crime was bound to be caught in a timely manner. So, I suppose if someone presented themselves with any sort of alibi, they maybe figured the real killer wouldn't have been so well thought out. But they were wrong, and Allison's case would go cold much quicker than anticipated. However, it would be in 1989, three years after Alison Perot was murdered, when suspicions fell on Francis Roy once again when he was living in Vancouver, BC. After a man arrested for petty theft, who was apparently acquainted to Francis, told police during an interview that he would personally consider Francis Roy to be a suspect in several murders that had occurred in the area of Mount Pleasant, Vancouver, BC during that time the murders of several sex workers. This man, although he remains unnamed in all the sources I found, he became an informant for Constable Doug Fell and Constable Mark Walthers of Vancouver Police and would go on to tell them that not only was Francis Roy as dangerous as his criminal history led on, but possibly more so. He told Vancouver Police that Francis was a sexual deviant, the kind that other sexually deviated criminals tended to avoid. Francis also tended not to feel remorse for the way his mind operated, the way he objectified young women and girls, in fact, he relished in it. 
On another occasion, a different informant would go on to tell Vancouver police that he had possibly seen Francis leading a sex worker into some bushes in Queen Elizabeth Park in Vancouver. Upon investigating this scene afterwards, Vancouver police found what they called a rape kit, a container with a sheet, a ligature, and a knife hidden under a rock. But no charges were laid. Nothing could really conclusively be tied back to Francis Roy. But with this new information, he was back on police's radar. And in 1996, five years after Francis had left British Columbia to return to Toronto, Ontario, officers would finally put his information into ViClass, the Violent Crime Linkage Analysis System. ViClass, if you don't know, is a Canadian-born database that helps police agencies across the country link together patterns of violent offenders. Before ViClass, if a violent offender committed a spree of murders in the province of Newfoundland, let's say, and then another spree of murders in the province of Manitoba, it was less likely that these cases would be connected. Interdepartmental communication between police agencies was not commonplace, and many serial murderers and rapists would use this to their advantage. Serial murderers and serial rapists could travel from city to city or province to province committing acts of sexual violence or just violence in general, and police would be none the wiser that their criminal of interest was actually a serial offender. Now, with ViClass, police agencies can input details about an offender's suspected physical appearance or aliases, their victim profiles, their distinct sexual paraphilias, pretty much anything, and any police agency can use that information to cross-reference potential criminal connections in their own respective jurisdictions. For example, if a serial killer likes to hunt down brown-haired women and leave bite marks on their legs in Newfoundland, and then those murders stop, and you find a similar case in Manitoba, then police agencies in both provinces are aware that not only do they have a spree killer in Newfoundland on their hands, but instead they have a serial killer with distinct sexual paraphilias and a distinct victim type who has decided to transcend provincial borders. You can see why this information might be useful in solving cold cases, right? Francis Roy's information got the attention of RCMP Sergeant Christine Wozny of the ViClass team, who had actually never heard of Roy or his criminal history. Once she had heard of Francis Roy, she made it somewhat of a personal mission to facilitate the rest of his information being entered into ViClass. With his history of sexual violence, it was critical to let police know across Canada that this guy was one to watch out for if he was around. This information eventually got the attention of Toronto homicide detective Vic Matanovic, who was struck by inconsistencies in Francis's original story and his alibi that nobody was sure anyone even followed up on at the time of Alison Perot's murder. Matanovic said that, in his opinion, Roy's initial police interview was chock full of deception. Matanovic started pushing internally with Toronto police because of it, with Roy's connection to Allison's neighborhood, him having trained at the same facility she was lured to, plus his past criminal history and his deceptive interview back in 1986, it was more than clear to Matanovic that he needed to put a tail on Francis Carl Roy. Interestingly, the day Allison's body was discovered, two days after her murder on the 27th of July on 1986 in Kingsmill Park, Francis actually turned himself into Toronto police to confess to assaulting a 20-year-old woman in his home. 
It's unclear whether police were even investigating this crime to begin with, but many people speculate that this was a diversion tactic, one that is apparently quite popular amongst violent criminals with extensive rap sheets like Francis. He told police that he beat this woman and smothered her with a pillow, but ultimately she lived. What I mean by a diversion tactic is that it seems counterintuitive to do something like this, confess to a violent crime while another major investigation is going on for a murder of a young child in your area that you have been interviewed for, but it's a distraction. The idea is to remove yourself from the spotlight of a major crime and expose yourself for a minor one. Instead of running from police, you run towards them. Serve five weeks in jail for a parole violation and a less severe crime instead of life in prison for something that police may be looking at you for. Something else that's interesting is that once Toronto police began digging into Roy's life a little deeper, they discovered an old report filed by Francis's parole officer back in 1987, Shelley Hassard, that was essentially her urging police to consider him as a suspect for Alison Perot's murder. This report was titled, Reasons Why Frank Roy is a Good Suspect in the Alison Perot Murder. I know, right? This report detailed the connections Roy had with the area where Allison disappeared and how their paths could have crossed. A subheading, quote, he's done it before, outlined how Roy's previous violent crimes had been eerily similar to the abduction and murder of Allison Perot. It turns out that before, Francis Roy had lured victims to isolated locations before brutalizing them. And in fact, at the time of Allison's murder, Francis Roy was on parole after serving only two and a half years for the rapes of a 14-year-old girl and a 19-year-old as well. While police were doing all this digging, they also learned that Roy had been diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, a personality disorder as characterized by the DSM-5 that comes with a lack of regard for morals and social norms, a tendency to exploit other people with no remorse, general lack of remorse, arrogance, parasitic tendencies, and impulsivity. You may be more familiar with antisocial personality disorder as it is intimately linked to psychopathy and sociopathy, psychopaths and sociopaths. This report was crucial for police as it only solidified Matanovic's beliefs and helped pitch his case to the rest of the homicide unit that Francis Roy was a good contender to be the murderer of 11-year-old Allison Perot. Once Toronto police were finally on board with tailing Francis, Detective Constable Lou DiLorenzo and Detective Constable John Angus managed to follow him into two different bars and collected a used cigarette butt and a discarded coffee cup that Francis had been drinking from. As I've discussed in previous episodes, this covert method of DNA collection allows officers to create a DNA profile without the need for a warrant, which is helpful in a case like this where public safety is clearly in jeopardy as long as someone like Francis Roy is walking free and the process to file and secure a warrant to collect DNA evidence can take a lot longer than just trying to find a used cigarette butt. After the DNA collected was sent to the forensic team of the Toronto Police Service, they came back with astounding results. And it was on July 25th of 1996, 10 years to the exact day that Alison Perot was lured from her home, that the DNA profile created of Francis Roy was matched to the seminal DNA found at the scene of Alison's body in Kingsmill Park. 
Only a few days later, on July 31st, Francis Roy was taken into custody and charged with the abduction and murder of Allison Perot, 10 years after it happened. Francis Roy's trial would begin in the spring of 1999, and if the case already wasn't being watched closely by the public, it certainly was after Judge David Watt decided to withhold information from the jury about Roy's previous sexual violent crimes and the fact that Roy was on parole for two rapes at the time of Allison's murder. The decision to withhold this information from the jury was made on the basis of a ruling made in 1988 by the Supreme Court of Canada against one Lawrence Corbett, who was accused of first-degree murder, and the legal precedent established in that case goes as follows. If evidence prior to a conviction would do more harm than good in regards to a defendant's right to a fair trial as opposed to providing evidence of guilt or innocence, then a trial judge has the right to use discretion about disclosing that evidence to a jury. Personally, I think Francis Roy's prior sexual violent crimes are very relevant to the murder of Alison Perot, evidence provided for by the fact that his rap sheet being entered into Vi-Class is what essentially led to his capture. But many legal scholars argue that Judge Watt made the right call. But the outcry from this was huge. Why shouldn't the jury know that Francis Roy was a serial violent offender? Leslie Perot, Allison's mom, was especially devastated, fearing that non-disclosure of habitual violent crimes would potentially undermine the seriousness of securing this conviction, and to her, it almost resulted in a miscarriage of justice. This whole ordeal became especially relevant when news outlets started reporting that, of Roy's previous sexual assaults, at least one of the victims had been tricked, lured, and then bound and sexually assaulted, just like Allison had. The Canadian public were very confused as to why they had more of a well-rounded picture of Francis Roy than the jury, those determining his fate. But ultimately, it was Judge David Watt's call, and the trial had to proceed. Everyone was really curious to see what the hell Roy's defense was going to be, because evidently he pleaded not guilty. But DNA evidence is not easily explained away. In an attempt to cast reasonable doubt upon the DNA evidence found at the scene of Allison's body, the defense asserted a narrative that was borderline laughable, only not so because of the nature of what we're talking about. Francis Roy claimed that on the day Allison's body was found, July 27th of 1986, he was out for a run around Kingsmill Park, where she was found, and he stumbled upon her lifeless body as he was looking for a place to urinate. It was then that he claims, as told by defense attorney Todd Ducharme, that he had the sudden urge to violate Allison's body by sticking a finger inside of her, and since he claimed to have masturbated that morning without washing his hands after, that is how his seminal DNA must have landed on her. The Crown went on to say that this explanation was preposterous, and further presented eyewitness testimony from three witnesses who had actually seen Roy with Allison on the day she disappeared. So, there was absolutely no doubt that Roy met up with Allison Perot on the day she disappeared. So, his assertion that his only encounter with Allison Perot was after she had been deceased was clearly and very easily refuted. And there were more witnesses as well, but these were the most damning. After a trial that lasted an entire month and six days of jury deliberation, on April 13th of 1999, the jury returned a guilty verdict for first-degree murder, and Francis Carl Roy was sentenced to life in prison without parole for 25 years. Leslie Perot, somewhat surprisingly, did not deliver a victim impact statement. 
but in an interview with Global News, she articulated her reasoning why. To have lost your daughter to rape and murder when she's 11 years old, I don't think there's any words I could have said that would have helped people understand more. Leslie Perot used her talents and career instead to pioneer the Stay Alert, Stay Safe campaign that you heard at the beginning of this episode. This campaign was pervasive on Canadian television, one I even remember seeing myself as a kid when I was growing up watching cartoons. However, the general consensus here is that Allison was alert, she was street smart and she was strong, but when people like Frances Roy are on the street, nobody is safe. Before I go, I wanted to speak a little bit more about the importance of ViClass, the Violent Crime Linkage Analysis System. According to the Toronto Star, approximately 55% of offenders have a criminal record at the time of committing a child murder. At least 33% of these individuals have committed violent or sexual offenses against children before. Of these, approximately 22% of them are on parole or probation at the time of their offense. This is an important consideration in cases like Allison's. Like I mentioned before, she was street smart. She grew up in almost downtown Toronto. She was used to public transit. She was a fast runner. She was an athlete. She was very smart. And she was about as well-versed in stranger danger as you would want any child to be. She even called her mom and asked for permission before leaving the house. And yet still, she met a violent and untimely death. It's really hard to say if Francis Carl Roy would have been able to commit Allison's murder or any of the other violent crimes he participated in if Viclass had existed at the time. But what we do know now is that even though Francis Carl Roy was supposed to be up for parole this year in 2021, although I'm pretty sure he didn't get it despite not being able to find much information on it, if he was able to get out this year, through Viclass, his name would be indefinitely linked to all of his crimes and every police agency would have access to his information because of it. Today, that would make things a million times harder for someone like Francis Carl Roy to commit violent sexual offenses, and thus would render the public a lot safer if he were to get out. Francis Roy was a manipulator with practice. He was no stranger to luring young women and girls into secluded areas so he could sexually assault them. But with the use of Viclass, it's a lot harder for Francis Roy and many other sexual violent offenders that do walk among us today to be able to get away with anything. Because whether those offenders know it or not, police do know what they're up to. It's just a matter of connecting all the dots, which will happen eventually. Forensic technology only gets better. If you look online, the Toronto police have a database of cold cases, and it's really hard not to notice how long that list is. Without Viclass, Allison's case could have still been on that list today, and we may not have ever figured out what happened to her. But one by one, as DNA technology advances and as the use of Viclass advances, these cases will get solved, and I have hope for every single one of them, just as many people had hope for Allison. Thank you for listening to another episode of Crimopedia. I think today's case is so important to talk about because it highlights the importance of international criminal databases and thorough, careful police work. Francis Roy was able to walk free for a decade, brutalizing many other people before finally being captured. And the emergence of Viclass was a vital step to putting many, many unsolved cases like this one was for many years finally to rest so that families can get closure and dangerous people can be put away. 
Be sure to follow the show wherever you're listening now so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts so I can get some feedback about what you guys think of the show. I think that's all from me. Thanks again, everybody, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.